From its first words to its last, the Gospel of Matthew calls people to a radical new frame of mind. In this literary masterpiece, the outsiders are brought in, the rich are exposed as poor, and those who seem most powerful are proven to be weak. But nothing in this book is as shocking as the circumstances surrounding the birth, life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth and the claims he makes on our lives. It's a narrative so profound, everyone has a response. All right. Good morning, Westside. It is great to see you as well, along with Ken. A big hello to you, especially those of you who are guests and first-timers and perhaps family or friends of someone getting baptized uh, a little bit later in our gathering. Really great to have you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Baptisms here at the 9 o'clock, now at the 11 o'clock, and then on the North Shore in the ocean in an hour or so. So just a great day. Um, we love days like this. So again, thank you for being here. Also, great to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers. I've been gone for a couple of weeks to Tanzania teaching uh, out of the Hope of the Nations Bible School. So thank you for your, um, just your support prayer-wise. Great to be back. Just trying to get back on the uh, West Coast. Somebody better get that. Uh, back on the West Coast uh, with you and uh, slowly getting back on this time. Uh, time here. So uh, just first day I got up at midnight. Second day I got up at 1130. Didn't even make the next day. And then slowly about two o'clock and four o'clock. So we're slowly getting back on West Coast time. So again, thank you for your prayers. Matthew 16. Great to be in the Word with you and teach and teach without translation. That's going to be a little bit of a, a journey for me. I've been teaching in five-second increments for the last couple of weeks, so I've got to start just carrying on and not wait for someone to make sense of what I'm talking about. And so hopefully that'll go okay with us. Matthew 16 is where we're at. We're looking at verses 13 to 23 today, but I'm going to read up to verse 19, stop, pray, and then later on in our time, I'll look at verses 20 to 23 with you. So let me read, and then we'll pray and walk through this wondrous text. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's stop there and pray together. Uh, Father, my, my prayer um, as we enter your word uh, now is that you would do today what you did in Peter's life then, that you would reveal things to us and that we would be receptive and sensitive, um, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, um, that those things that we build up, oftentimes even unknowingly build up, they get in the way of us hearing from you, that those would be torn down today. And that your word, which is not merely 
ink on a page, but living and active like a seed would go into places today um, that desperately need to be uh, gone into. So I, 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 I ask that you would do that. I plead with you to do that. Uh, for our sake, in terms of growing in Christ-likeness and your joy, for this would be a work that would entirely have to come by way of you and your spirit in us and through the word that you've given us. So I pray for these things and pray for them all in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, full transparency on the front end. I've taught on this text here before with you if you've been around for a couple of years. In fact, the very first sermon I ever gave in this building back in September 2013 was on this text in, a, uh, in connection with a series that we called Questions Jesus Asks. And so if you feel like, you know what, you're hitting some things I think you've talked about before, there's probably a good chance that I will. There are certain things no matter what you do in this text that you better hit when you go through it. However, with that in mind, I've chosen to approach things a tad differently than I normally would if it was a first go around here. In other words, I want to approach things perhaps in a way that um, may be a surprise to some of you. And, and what I mean by that is I really want to focus most of all on Peter in this text. And I want to learn from Peter by looking at what he says and what he does and how he reacts and how Jesus presses in on him those things that are to be true of us as well. So let's look at him and discover what needs to be true of us. In addition, I want us to consider the shortcomings of Peter. I want to look at those things in Peter that need to be warnings for us too. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you five characteristics or marks of Peter that, again, we need to learn from. However, before we do that, I need to set the stage. Let me set the table by giving you some background to this text. If you have your Bibles open, just notice what it says in verse 13. It begins by saying that when Jesus and his disciples enter the district of Caesarea Philippi, just keep that place in mind, we'll come back to it, he asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It makes sense, by the way, that Jesus asked this question here. For chapter 16 marks a significant change in the earthly ministry of Jesus. What's going to take place hereafter is Jesus being entirely focused on a final journey to Jerusalem. And so what's happening here in chapter 16 is the end of the ministry journey of Jesus in Galilee specifically. He's been there for a number of chapters, but that time is ending. And what we're going to see now as we continue on in our study of Matthew is Jesus focused entirely on this journey to Jerusalem. So it seems with his ministry life in Galilee ending, Jesus wants to know what's the word on the street? What do people in Galilee think of me? What do they say? What's the views? When you go to the marketplace or you get in discussions with people elsewhere, who do they say I am? Again, what's the word on the street? But adding drama to the question, in fact, adding intrigue to the question is the fact that Jesus asked the question in Caesarea Philippi of all places. This is not a throwaway piece of information. Let me explain why. I think most of us would agree, 
most of us, perhaps not all, but most of us would agree that at times where a question is asked is almost as important as the question itself. Let, let me explain. Think about the big bad boy question, will you marry me? Right, it's a big question, right? It's one of the most important questions that we'll ask or have asked of us. But anytime you butt up against a person who says that they just got engaged, what is one thing that you want to know? I mean, beyond just, hey, show me the ring. What else do you want to know? You want to know, where do he ask you? I mean, tell me about that. Because that's really important in connection with the engagement question, is it not? You don't want to hear, he texted me. You don't want to hear that. Right, with a nice little heart emoji. And it was great. It was so sweet. You don't want to hear that. That's not good enough. Even though the question is the same, it's not good enough that he texted you or, or he asked you at a bus stop. Like, that's not okay either, right? We're going to work. We're at the bus stop. Unless, 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 of course, it's the exact same bus stop where you first met. Then that's kind of sweet, sort of. A little romantic, kind of. You know what I mean? So it's kind give me a little bit, right? It's not bad. It's, there's worse things that you can do. So what does that have to do with our text and Caesarea Philippi and the questions? Question asked by Jesus. Well, stay with me. Let me give you a little background of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was in the northeast region of Israel, about as far north and east as you can get and still be in Israel, about 45 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, most of the ministry life of Jesus was spent in that region around a place called Capernaum. But it's 45 clicks north of that, just at the foot of a mountain called Mount Hermon. I'll put a map up on the screen. You can see it for yourself. Caesarea Philippi, uh, not only because of its location where it was, stood out. It was, it was also a place that stood out because it was one of the three places that Herod the Great built a temple in honor of Caesar, his Caesar, Caesar Augustus. This temple in Caesarea Philippi, known as the Augustium, in his honor there, I'll give you a picture of it in just a moment, um, was significant. For a Herod to do that for a Caesar stood out, gave you some sense of what kind of city this was. In addition, that Herod, Herod the Great, he willed the city to his 16-year-old son, Philip. Pretty good will, right? To get a city? It's not a bad deal. Philip, he built it up as his capital and also built it up in honor of his Caesar, an individual named Tiberius, hence the name Caesarea Philippi, Caesar, Philip, you can see them both together. As I said, there was a temple there that his daddy built in honor of his Caesar, but other things took place there that made the city stand out as well. One of them is that a god named Pan was worshipped there. Some of you have heard of Pan. You've seen pictures of Pan. Pan, he was symbolized by a goat in fact, he was seen as having the torso of a man and legs of a goat, sort of, sort of like some of you, right? I'm not even sure what that means, right? Just that's how he's pictured. He had the torso of a man. He had, he had the legs of a goat. He had porticos and porches that were, that were built there in his honor. In fact, so connected was the city with the worship of Pan, Pan that during the reign of the Greeks, the city was known as Paneas. Again, give you some 
slides on the screen to give you. That's an artist's rendition of the city at the time of Christ. That building to your left is the Augustium. But what you can see behind it, which is really important, is a hole in a rock face. What is this hole? Well, this hole in the rock face was was at led, excuse me, to a pit that was filled with water. It was in this pit, in this hole, in this rock face that people believed that Pan lived in. In fact, it was believed that this hole led to the, to the underworld, that this hole was actually a gateway to the underworld. In fact, it was referred to by some as the gateway to Hades. As said, it was believed that Pan lived in it to appease Pan, Sacrifices were thrown into the pit, into the water. If they sank, Pan was happy. If they didn't, he was displeased. They wanted to appease him. They did this, but they didn't only do this. There was much temple prostitution carried out in in an attempt to placate him. In addition with that, not to gross you out, but also were sexual acts with goats to placate him. I share this with you. To simply say that Caesarea Philippi, to say the least, was not a place where you vacationed with your kids. It's not that type of place. It was a first century version of a red light district so licentious, so evil, that rabbis at the time forbid people to travel there. I want you to think Vegas, I want you to think New Orleans, I want you to think Amsterdam on steroids. That's Caesarea Philippi. It was pagan, worship of Caesar, worship of Pan, made up primarily of non-Jewish individuals, pagan people, Syrians, and Greeks. It's that kind of place. And yet, it was here. It was here, of all places, that Jesus popped the question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 14, we get the answer. The disciples respond, Jesus, the word on the street is, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some others say one of the prophets. Now, it's not quite clear in this answer what people think of Jesus. What I mean by that, it's not quite clear whether they feel that Jesus is a reincarnation of one of those individuals. It was a prominent thinking at the time, so it perhaps could be. Or that like Herod, they believed that John the Baptist had raised from the dead again. We see that in other places in the gospel stories, that mindset. Or that Jesus simply had come in a manner like one of the prophets. In a manner like Elijah, for example. Elijah, who did many miracles, or like Jeremiah, who really pressed in on the culture and the religious leadership of the day, or, for example, like uh, John the Baptist, who came preaching the kingdom of heaven and called people to repent. It's not really clear what they mean. However, what is clear is that how people thought of Jesus was rather favorable Especially when you contrast how they thought of Jesus in comparison to how the religious leaders of the day thought of Jesus. 
What did the religious leaders of the day think of Jesus? He does what he does by the way and power of Satan. That's what they thought. But here, quite favorable. It actually may remind you of today in terms of people's perceptions of Jesus. Most people today, if you ask them, give me your thoughts on Jesus, it's pretty complimentary. Good teacher, moralist, religious icon, revolutionist, pretty positive. So this, their take then should remind us perhaps of people's perspectives today, rather positive about Jesus then, rather positive about Jesus today, and yet, in spite of this apparent positivity, Jesus presses in, and he asks a follow-up question, and you can see it in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? This second question sheds light on a couple of things. One, the people's conclusions about Jesus are inadequate in spite of their seeming respect. Because Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's fantastic. Do you agree with them? He asks, but what do you say? I know what they're saying, but what about you, which also spotlights and affirms the special relationship that Jesus has with his disciples? Again, I know that's what they're saying about me, but guys, what about you? What do you think? Peter responds in verse 16 saying, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That term Christ is not the last name of Jesus. I think we know that. It's a title. It's a title that means Messiah. It's translated Messiah in certain translations of the Bible. It may show up that way in your Bible. Christos in the Greek, it means anointed one. It was used much in the New Testament, but it was used much in the Old Testament as well, 39 times in connection with prophets, priests, and kings. But most often, it was used in connection with a promised one, one who would come in the line of King David. King David was known as the anointed one, but there would be one in his line that would come in like but greater manner, who would usher in, they believed, an earthly kingdom. An earthly kingdom that would overthrow and forever the kingdom that they were subjected to then, the Roman Empire. So their view was that this Messiah, this Christ figure would come and usher in a military and a political liberation and would be forever established. That's their thoughts. And we should assume that Peter felt that way too. That he had this mindset. In fact, I think we can say that with great conviction which I think will become very clear a bit, a bit later. But I think at this point, we can assume that. But in fairness to Peter, Peter does express a growing understanding of Jesus when saying, you're not only the Christ, but you're the very son of the living God. And it's at this stage where I want you to notice the first of those five characteristics of Peter that stand out. Here's the first. I want you to notice Peter's courage. A courage that stood up in the face of public opinion and declared, Jesus, I know that's what they're saying about you, but I say you're the Christ. I say that you're the son of the living God. I emphasize this for Peter's was a courage that is to be ours too. For the question that Jesus asks of Peter is one he also asks of us. 
I know what most Vancouverites say about me. But what do you say? I know they're rather complimentary. But what do you think? And the thing about Jesus is that he doesn't always ask us to share in the safety of our living rooms, does he? Oftentimes, Jesus asks us to share our opinion of him in our version of Caesarea Philippi. Not in our living rooms, but at boardrooms and playgrounds and family gatherings and classrooms at dinner parties. Do you hear what they're saying about me? Are you going to say anything? They're saying this, but you know me. You spent time with me. Are you going to say anything? Are you going to stand up when you're at the very cave where the gates of hell are? Are you going to say anything? We need to notice what's taking place here in the response of Peter. And thus, I don't think Jesus posing this question while standing at the supposed gate of the underworld is a coincidence. In fact, I think it's our mission. This is our mission. I say that with conviction for Jesus doesn't call us to retreat. To to retreat from places of evil but declare that he is the Christ in the very center of them. We are not to be of those who shrink back. For we have been given a spirit of boldness and empowerment and we have been commissioned to go Not in our own strength, but again, empowered by the Spirit in us to go into those places and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ. I believe Jesus is the Son of the living God. The model of Peter is one that needs to be fleshed out in our life too. As I said, Westside, Jesus didn't send the Spirit of God to reside in us so that we would go huddle in safety and domestication but to do battle on the front lines. A second characteristic of Peter, that being his confession. We've heard it already a number of times. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But I bring it up again because I want you to hear it in light of a text that I've taken you to many times over the course of this series, a text found in John chapter 20. Where John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. And notice what the end goal here is in light of what Peter just confessed. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. I bring up Peter's confession again, for I don't want us to only see it as a declaration of belief, but as an entrance into eternal life. These are written so that you come to a place, that I come to a place where we go, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God, and it's a leading, an opening, an invitation for us to enter eternal life. And therefore, do you see why Jesus asked the question a second time? He asked it again for to see Jesus. Please hear me on this. Vancouverites, please hear me on this. He asked the question again for to see Jesus any other way than as the Christ, 
as the Son of the living God is to see Jesus as less than a Savior. In fact, to see Jesus in any other way is to see Jesus in terms that are nothing short of heretical and blasphemous in spite of how flattering we hope to be. He's God. Anything less than you are God is a declaration that makes much less of him than ought. Jesus doesn't want your flattery. He wants your hearts. He wants your confession. For it's this confession, again, that leads to eternal life. So we see Peter's courage, and we've heard Peter's confession, but I also want us to notice Peter's sensitivity, number three. Peter's sensitivity. Sensitivity to what exactly? Well, to the revealing work of God. For in response, did you notice what Jesus says of Peter? In response to Peter's confession, Jesus declares a beatitude in verse 17. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, Peter, because your confession evidences the work of the Father in your life. And by declaring this, and please don't miss this as well, Jesus affirms Peter's answer. Peter, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, Peter. And just notice what he says. You are blessed because my father, Peter, my father, the father you speak of, the one you call me the son of, my father revealed this to you. And Peter, you're blessed. You're blessed because left on your own, you wouldn't have reached this conclusion. But nor would we. This is true of us too. For none of us comes to the Father unless the Father draws us. And no one declares that Jesus is the Christ but by the Spirit of Christ. And so if you believe today, you've been blessed. You've been blessed. The, the Father drew you and revealed Jesus to you. You've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What a blessing. And yet, in saying that, I want us to realize that we're not passive players in this faith journey either. For that is not Matthew's position. If you've been with us throughout this series, one of the things, one of the key themes that I hope you've picked up on is that there's this contrast in Matthew's gospel between those who are hard-hearted and those who are receptive to what Jesus is revealing. Understand the theme. Remember the theme. He's coming. He's teaching. He's claiming. He's, he's performing sign after sign after sign. And there are those that are receptive. And then there are those who are hard-hearted. For example, just to give you a few, just to remind you of this series, Jesus he's, heals a paralytic and we read that the crowds praise God. But then there are some who murmur, who does he think he is? Jesus calls Matthew and a party is thrown in honor of Jesus while others complain that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus casts out a demon and a deaf man and crowds marvel while others say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. 
This all culminated in a, pa a passage that Matt walked us through last week where in spite of the signs given, the skeptics ask for another. We want another one. Give us another one, Jesus. Jesus replies, the only sign given to you will be the greatest of all signs, my death and resurrection. And as we know, they'll reject that one too. As Jesus said elsewhere, even if someone were to come back from the dead and someone did, you still wouldn't believe. As we have talked about over the past months, theirs was a willful and belligerent resistance to the revelation of God by way of Jesus. But I wonder about us. I wonder about those of us who give off the air of seeking after God, but in our heart of hearts know we're willful, willful, willfully resisting because of what it will mean if we step into belief. That's only something that you can answer. But I also wonder about those of us who claim to believe and yet consistently say we don't hear from God. Even though the voice of God is heard through the Word of God and through godly wisdom and counsel from others as the Spirit gifts us, as well as through His daily provisions in our lives, we still say, I don't hear from God. And I wonder about that. Dallas Willard, a favorite of mine, but has passed a number of years ago, he speaks to this when writing, and you can read it on the screen behind me. Perhaps we do not hear the voice of God because we do not expect to hear it. Then again, perhaps we do not expect to hear the voice of God because we know that we, are full, that we fully intend to run our lives on our own terms and have never seriously considered anything else. Something to consider, perhaps. A fourth that stands out in Peter's life, not so much a characteristic, but what I will call a role, and that is, yeah, simply Peter's role, as seen in verses 18 and 19. I know we've read them. Let me read them one more time. The role of Peter. Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell are Hades, interesting, standing at that cave in the pit they're in. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are few verses that are more hotly debated than these two. And the debate rages even today, and it begins in verse 18 with the question of, okay, what, what is this rock that Jesus speaks of? Three popular opinions. The first is the rock speaks of Peter, which makes sense. I mean, Jesus does change the name of Simon to Peter, Petros, which means rock. So on the, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. So that's one opinion. But then there are people who go, I don't like the idea of Jesus building the church on a person. So it's not Peter. It's Peter's confession. You are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Makes sense, too, because the church will be built up only when people come to a place of belief 
that Jesus is the Christ and enter eternal life. So that makes sense too. But then there are people that go, it's not Peter and it's not his confession. It's Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. Because Jesus is the rock. Right? The rock is Christ. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 10. He's in fact the cornerstone. Paul writes of that as well in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in addition to that, not only is he the cornerstone, he's the very foundation of the church. Paul also writes about that as well. So it's got to be Jesus to think of it any other way is almost heretical to some. What do I believe? For whatever it's worth to you, I believe that the rock refers to Peter and that you have to do a lot of verbal gymnastics to land anywhere else, especially when you consider the role of Peter in the life of the early church and in what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 when stating there that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But here's the thing. If you disagree with me, I'm fine with it. No big deal to me. For I also agree that the church is built by the confession of Jesus, or in Jesus, that he is the Christ. And I certainly agree as well that Jesus is the ultimate foundation of the church. And furthermore, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 18 that it's his church. It's not Peter's. I want to build my church. So I get that as well. So no debate for me at all if you land somewhere else. No debate at all. And what else also shouldn't be and can't be debated from our text, and I want you to notice it, is number one, the promise that Jesus will build his church. And number two, the gates of hell won't stand against it. And I also want you to notice what is given to Peter. Peter is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The debate goes on. What are these keys? What are these keys that have been given to Peter, these keys to the kingdom. Well, reason with me. Big, small group here, okay? Just reason with me. What do keys do? Well, the answer, Norm, is that keys open and close. They lock and they unlock. Great. Perfect answer, right? We're, on, we're off to a good start. That's what keys do. They lock and they unlock. What do gates do? Well, gates keep people in or they keep people out. When you're behind a gate, what are you? Well, you're bound, as it were. You're bound. You're, you're, you're locked in. And when a gate is open, what then? You're loosed. You're free. If a gate is closed, how do you open it? You unlock it. Makes sense. What do you need to unlock a locked gate? Keys. So put it all together. Peter, I'm building my church and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I ask, what is that which frees people from the gates of hell? The answer is the gospel. And what is that which keeps people in bondage? The rejection of the gospel. Peter, I'm giving you these keys. And so what are these keys? The keys are the gospel message of Jesus. I'm giving you this, Peter. These are what frees people, what opens up the gates of hell and lets people loose. But on the other hand, if they reject this, they stay bound. 
And isn't the sweet thing in the life of Peter, (coughs) excuse me, the sweet thing in the life of Peter is you get to Acts chapter 2. Day of Pentecost, Peter preaches. The rock preaches, man. And what does he preach? He preaches the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what takes place? The church is built. 3,000 souls on one day added to the 120. Jesus' promise of building the church through the keys that have been given to Peter is coming to fruition. But Westside, what we also need to understand about the keys that have been given to Peter, the authority that is Peter's, is our authority too. We've been given the same keys. We have been given the keys with the authority of the message to say to people, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. I mean, think about that. What what an unbelievable authority, but authority that's been given. But we can also say to people, if you don't come to Jesus, you're still bound. And we want you to come to Jesus. So Peter's courage, note it. Peter's confession, oh, I hope it's yours too. Peter's sensitivity, and Peter's role. Which brings us to verse 20, where Jesus says this, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, which sadly has become a lot of people's life verse in the church. Sadly. This is one of these verses where you go, what? Keys, loose, Build, and then this. Why? Why this? Why does Jesus instruct this? Well, simply because their view, the disciples' view, along with most others at the time, was incomplete, misconstrued, and so Jesus instructs them to say nothing, please. Say nothing about me. You see, Westside, there is only one thing worse than not sharing Jesus at all, and that's sharing a version of Jesus he's not. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, but not the type of Messiah Jesus came to be. As Mike Wilkins writes, instead of being a revolutionary liberator, Jesus will be a suffering Messiah, something that even his own disciples, let alone the crowds, had a great difficulty fathoming. This difficulty shows up in the last three verses of our text, which highlights a final aspect of Peter that I want us to see, that being Peter's failure. Let's look at verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This if you're taking notes, is the first of what will be four declarations of this coming to pass. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to begin wrapping up our time, um, what is now this, still this morning for five more minutes, by having you notice the word must in verse 21. 
From that time, we read in verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Why must he? And why must he from that time on? Well, the reason is because of what he promised in verses 18 and 19. What did he promise in those verses? I remind you, the promises of the church being built, death and Hades being defeated, and the keys given. All of them resting on Jesus suffering, dying, and rising again. It must be this way. It must be this way for the only thing that will lock the gates of hell and loose those in bondage is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It must be this way. And it must be this way for this is the Messiah Jesus came to be. This one. This is the Messiah, a suffering Messiah who came to die and conquered death through his resurrection. That's who we are to declare to the world. That's who Jesus wants us to, to share. And if you're not ready to share that Messiah with the world, Jesus would rather you just keep things to yourself. I want you to declare this about me because this is who I am. But Peter, at this point, he had no room for a Messiah like that. In fact, so certain is Peter on his take on things that he doesn't merely question Jesus, he rebukes him. Jesus, however, understands the true source of Peter's rebuke, that being Satan himself. Another commentator, A.B. Bruce, writes this, and you can read this on the screen as well. Jesus recognizes here his old enemy in a new and even more dangerous form. For none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than our character. I would also add parents in there, not just friends. Well-meaning parents can do things that keep their kids from Christ-likeness in so many ways. We are to parent our kids, not comfort them only. That Satan is the source of Peter's rebuke doesn't excuse Peter, but merely explain Peter. Peter knew the man, but he didn't know the mission of the man. Peter knew the person, but he didn't know the purpose of his coming. And, and because of that, sadly because of that, he became an easy pawn in the hands of Satan. Peter had the mind of man, and the mind of man has no room for a cross. Peter's pride will show up again, by the way. It shows up on the night of Jesus' arrest where he declares to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So there you go. That's Peter. In all of his glory and in all of his fallibility. At one point, the rock. And then at another, the stumbling block. May we, may we learn from both. Let me close, my time is done, with a couple of quick takeaways, really quick. The first is, I spoke earlier of Peter's sensitivity to the revelation of the Father, right? Gave you that. 
Father works in Peter. Peter confesses. Peter, this is good. The Father's working in you. Great sensitivity to the work of the Father. The question I have and what I wonder about is what removed the sensitivity to the revelation of Jesus? When Jesus declared, I got to go to Jerusalem, die, rise, why was Peter not sensitive to that revelation? Well, the popular view of the Messiah certainly influenced him. He had no room for a Messiah like that, but I think there was something that added to it, and that was his success. I think adding to it was the declaration of Jesus to Peter. Peter, you're the rock, man. You're the rock, and you're blessed, and I'm giving you keys. I say this, for few things are more dangerous to losing our sensitivity to the revealing work of God than success. And the pride it so often births. So prideful was Peter at this point that he felt like he could go to the Son of the living God and say, you're wrong. But don't we have the same tendency? Say, God, you're wrong. You don't know what's best. Maybe it doesn't come out of our mouths, but it's demonstrated by our action. Oftentimes it's not, far be it from you, Lord, but far be it from me, Lord. I have a better idea, Lord. And finally, something else that stood out from this text is the number of couplets in it. Did you notice? For those of you that like this kind of thing, there are a, a huge number of couplets. What do I mean by couplets? Well, combinations of two. There's two questions. There's two answers. There's two revelations. There's two fathers. There's Bar-Jonah, the father Jonah, and there's the heavenly father. There's even two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world. What are they saying there in the kingdom of heaven? But there's one other couplet. There's two Jesuses. Two Jesus. One a mere prophet, and the other the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you agree with Peter, are you willing to say it near Caesarea Philippi? Let me pray. And so, Jesus, um, with, with this text just hanging over us, and your call on us in it so, so clear, so evident. Um, we recognize um, that without you, your spirit that you sent, um, we can't. We can't do this. We confess our fallibility. We can confess our tendency of pride and arrogance. We confess our fear. We confess the times where we've denied you by simply keeping our mouths shut. We confess all of it. 
And we plead, we ask, we beg that you would be so gracious as to empower us. Instead, we're desperate for your power. We need it. We want to be faithful. We want to stand at the gates of hell and say, Jesus, you're the Christ, son of the living God, so that others can hear and come to a place where they too confess so that your church would be built up. So help us in that. I pray even today if there are some that don't know you but they're pushing against you that that resistance would fall to the wayside and they, they would come to you. And those that do know you but perhaps there's areas of life where they're resisting where they're saying, I know better. Pray that they would repent of that and come to you, receive your grace, strengthening grace, I pray. So many things to pray for out of this text, but at the very least, we bring those to you. Praying for all of them. In Jesus, your great name. Amen. Uh, need to make a quick transition from that to giving you some direction. We normally respond to the teaching of God's Word here through acts of worship, and we're going to do that, but not a part of this response time is how we normally do it with the table, the communion table, the table of bread and wine and juice, that table that depicts the work of Jesus on the cross for us. But we will be observing a sacred moment, a sacrament, an observance here that will be taking place in that in that tub next to me where people will be getting baptized. As I said, I believe earlier in this gathering, nine people are getting baptized today at Westside, a couple of them, three of them during this, this gathering. What is baptism? It's a picture of the work of Jesus. It's a picture of the work of Jesus reminding us that Jesus took the grave for us. And so when you see people going under the water, think of Jesus dying for us, but he didn't stay under the water. He came out of the water, resurrecting, so that one day we too would enjoy resurrection life fully, completely, physically. But it's also a symbol of what's taken place in the individuals getting baptized, that they are identifying with Jesus, that they have died to their old life with Christ, baptized with Christ, but they haven't stayed there. Because of the work of Jesus, they have risen into newness of life, new creations, new creations, declaring today by this act, this is what Jesus did for me, and this is who I am now in Christ. That's what this is about. It's a wonderful picture. So what's going to happen is we're going to show a video that will give you a sense of the nine getting baptized today, and then they will get baptized, a handful or three of them, as I said. The band is going to be up here thereafter and lead us into worship, and then Ken will close our time. So let's run the video. Thanks. Hi, my name is Braley. I am 11 years old. I want to get baptized because I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to pay for my sins, but he still loves me. I, be I believe that Jesus wants me to be a leader to my friends, and one of the ways by doing that is getting baptized. A verse I want to share with you today is 1 John 4, verse 7 to 11. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Joseph first because I believe that Jesus loves you no matter what. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kimberly. I grew up attending church every Sunday with my parents, and I was baptized at a young age. Although I was taught about God's grace and his unfailing love for me, I had not recognized the significance of repentance and the true meaning of salvation. As I drifted away from church during high school and through to my early 20s, I continued to live selfishly and disobedient to God, and my relationship with him diminished. Although I identified as a Christian, I felt disappointed in myself that my lifestyle did not align with my beliefs. One morning, feeling worn down, I felt a tug at my heart to find a church again, and I knew that this was God calling me back home. It was at this time that I asked God for forgiveness. Proverbs 3-6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lead on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Hi, my name is Whitney, and I would like to get baptized today uh, because through his grace, God has shown me a new path, which is to follow him and to live to glorify his name. Growing up in a Christian household, I always knew that God existed, but I decided to turn my back from him again and again uh, throughout my whole youth. He clearly had a plan for me, and after a series of events, it was clear that I needed him, and I asked for his forgiveness. Sure enough, despite my brokenness, God was there with open arms, ready to take me in as his child and forgiving me for my past, present, and future sins. I want to be baptized because I know that through him is the only way to be truly fulfilled, and I want to be obedient in his word as I continue my walk with him in faith. Thank you. Hi Westside, my name is Katie. Today I'd like to be baptized because I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross for me. I know that out of love he died for my sins so that I may be forgiven and that I may have eternal life. Baptism isn't about me, it's not about us, it's about Jesus and the work that he did. In my head I had it that I had to be in this perfect relationship with God before being ready to be baptized and before being good enough. But that's not true at all. In Acts 22:16, it says, And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. We're all imperfect, but because of God's grace, we've been given this chance to follow Jesus' example and eternal life through forgiveness. So in obedience to Christ and in proclamation of my faith, I'd like to be baptized. Hi, my name is Christian. I'm 11 years old. I live in a Christian family. I, I used to follow what my family did, and now I'm making my own decision to follow, follow Jesus. I realized that I, want, that I wanted to accept the Lord and show up by getting baptized. I think that my mom helped, helped me un understand about following Jesus. When I was born, my twin sister and, and I were ele born 11 weeks early. We are miracles, and I know that God, God kept me alive. I know that he loves, forgives, and takes care of me every day. I was named Christian because it means follower of Christ, Now that's what I want to do. Hi, my name is Bridget McElhinney, and I go to Westside North Shore. For a long time, I thought that you had to be the perfect Christian to get baptized, and I didn't think that I was ready or good enough. But this past summer, 
on my mission trip to Mexico and through like mentors at Keats Camp and friends who've been baptized, I realized that baptism is a symbol showing the world that I'm a Christian. And God calls us all to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and publicly devote ourselves to Him. So I'm getting baptized to show the world that I love Jesus and that I want to give myself to Him and do everything for Him. Hi, my name is Sophie and I'd like to get baptized to publicly demonstrate my faith in Jesus. I started coming to Westside a little over a year ago and grew up in a Christian family, but valued my competitive swimming career over faith. As God closed those doors, I turned to hockey, until injuries closed those doors for good. I finally realized I have been idolizing sports and needed Jesus' forgiveness. As I was praying one day, I took a step back and realized that because Jesus died on the cross, I can call myself a child of God, as in 2 Corinthians 6.18. Therefore, I am getting baptized as an act of obedience and to demonstrate my love for Jesus. Thank you. Good morning, Westside. My name is Monica, and I'm getting baptized today in declaration of my faith. God has been calling me to be baptized for about a year, but I was stubborn and kept telling myself that I had to grow in my faith before taking the next step. Um, God kept pursuing me and helped me realize that if I waited until I was a Christian that I strive to be, I'd never have the chance to declare my love for Him. Thank you. Hi, my name is Nina. Um, I've been a Christian and a follower of Christ for very early on in my childhood. Growing up, I had a pretty good relationship with Him, and I always wondered why my relationship with Jesus wasn't as strong as my mom's was. So after a lot of praying, I realized that if I wanted that, I'd have to step up and really work for it. So for the past several years, I've been really building my relationship with Jesus. And just, uh, I think this year is the strongest it's ever been. And for somebody who's been wanting to get baptized for a while, I'm finally taking that exciting leap because God is good always. And as Philippians 1.21 says, living is Christ and dying is gain. 